on today's Story Beat. Well, you know, you're always going to come into any rehearsal period with some preconceived notions. And sometimes the directors knock them down. You got to listen to your director. You got to trust it and listen to it. And then sometimes you can take his note and still infuse it with what your intention was. This is Story Beat with Steve Cuden, a podcast for the creative mind. Story Beat explores how masters of creativity develop and produce brilliant works that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My guest today, the brilliant stage, screen, and voice actress, Melinda Peterson, has been performing professionally for more than 40 years. She was introduced to audio theater in 1990 when she played all 17 of the female roles in Proctor and Bergman's Power, which aired on NPR as a regular segment of John Hockenberry's Heat. Since that time, she has contributed voices to NPR Playhouse Productions, including working with all-star casts on We Hold These Truths and Empire of the Air for Otherworld Media, as well as performing with the legendary Firesign Theater on the great internet broadcast for the Toyota Comedy Festival in New York. And she's traveled several times to Dublin to participate in Crazy Dog Audio Productions for RTE, Ireland's public radio service. Melinda is most proud that she was Norman Corwin's very favorite Lucretia Borgia in his The Plot to Overthrow Christmas. She's also led casts of Agatha Christie's BBC Murders, playing Agatha Christie herself. Melinda has performed at regional theaters across the country and is a member of the Los Angeles classical acting ensemble, the Antius Theater Company. She lives in L.A. with her husband, the great Firesign Theater writer and performer, Phil Proctor, who's also one of my favorite guests ever on StoryBeat. I've been privileged to interview Phil twice on this show. So for all those reasons and many more, I'm truly delighted to welcome the exceptional actress, Melinda Peterson, to StoryBeat today. Melinda, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Oh, Steve, it's so kind of you to have me here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Believe me, it's a it's a delight for me to have you on the show. So let's go back in time just a little bit. You've been at the acting game for a while now, and I'm just wondering at what age were you when the acting bug first bit you? When did you first think, ooh, that's really something I want to do? Twelve. You have a specific place and time in mind. I absolutely do. Um, and it was kind of by mistake. Uh, we had gotten, I must have been like in, I can't remember what grade, whatever grade you're in at, at 12. Um, and sixth I was always grade, like a six, seven, somewhere in there. Six or seven, something like that. Yeah. And uh, we were given, our English teacher gave us a, a list of books. We were to choose one and uh, read it and report, blah, blah, blah. I went to the library to get Carson McCullers, a member of the wedding. Sure. But by mistake, I got the play. Okay. And, you know, because it's about, you know, like a 12-year-old girl, 12, mm -hmm. 13. I, you know, I read the play. I went, I'm not sure I got all of that, you know. And I 
So I read it again. This is like all in one sitting. And I read it again. And the third time that I read it, I actually started saying all of Frankie's lines. Oh, wow. And I went, oh, now that actually feels correct in my mouth. It's the first time I actually thought of acting. And did you you knew at that point that you were doing something that was related to acting? It wasn't something totally foreign to you. Yeah, it was in play form. So I knew that another brilliant actress, uh, Julie Harris, had done mm. it. I think when she was like thirty. I think. Um, anyway, yeah, I, yeah, I knew it was acting. So I hadn't you, seen the I hadn't seen the movie, but did you then start to take classes or audition for shows? What did you do at that point? Well. My school was not super hip in terms of its dramatic program. They had a very nice woman who had been there for a number of years and had some vague stage experience. But but yeah, you know, so I, you know, I would join in. I go, yeah, sure. I'll be in this cast. Yeah, sure. I'll do this, you know. Just because I knew it was from what I had to my avail at that time, it was the best I could do. Yeah. And I did, you know, YMCA, summer theater stuff, too. Did you, did you take um, classes? No, actually, there were no classes that I knew of available to me. But um, I'd won a couple of awards acting. And so uh, I just, you know, joined a, just applied uh, to university as if, why not? I didn't even know about all these background stuff you could have done. And I got accepted to Hofstra University, right? Uh, at, which at that time was, I, I don't know where things are right now, but they were like way up there in terms of theater schools. Hey, so your training then was in college. That's where you went to get trained. Yeah, that's where that was the first uh, actual yeah training. But I'm going to now lead you into a, a different path mm -hmm. as to how I got hired uh, as a professional actor. At what age? Um, well, it was soon out of college. All right. So in your early 20s then. Uh, yeah. When I was in college, I, I was talking about, you know, how other actors pick up training all, you know, along the way. Well, it turns out that in my class, I had like five star members of the, you know, high school for the performing arts. And, you know, they just they could do anything. I'm as far as I was concerned. I didn't even know how to do a monologue at that point. Right. So I found pretty soon after I was there as a freshman that they always needed people to work backstage. So I went, okay, uh, let me start doing that. And I, I started doing that. I remember my very first play was with a, a very simple light cue, making it look like a train was going by. Okay. Uh, and um, and I, I started uh, doing more uh, of the backstage work. Um, I actually became, this was in my freshman year, I became a student aide in the shop. So that I was, you know, in the theater every day, 
helping with whatever sets had to be done uh, and um, and ended up uh, actually designing a couple of sets oh, in nice. my in my senior year, but also uh, uh, after I was in the shop, then I graduated to the costume shop. So I was in the costume shop all the time. So just understanding that when you were a student aide, you were actually earning money. Hmm. You, you were actually earning, you know, I can't even remember how much it was. I'm sure it was a mere pittance, but you know, when you're in college, a couple of extra bucks makes a big difference. And you were hanging around production. So you understood and how I, that was starting to work. And yeah. Um, so that means is that when I got out of college, actually it was before I even graduated, I got a job as a dresser um, for the Goober Ford and Gross circuit, which is a, a summer circuit on the East Coast. Okay. And I was... Peggy Cass's dresser for Plaza Suite with Dan Daly on Broadway. Oh no no no! This was for the summer tour. You I know, saw the... Peggy Cass do Plaza Suite on Broadway. Oh sure <laughs> you did. Yeah yeah. Well I'll tell you she's uh, she was great. She was really really great. Um, and I believe at that time she found out how much. <laughs> How much I wasn't making, which I seem to remember was like $85 a week to be her dresser and the wardrobe mistress. Okay. So I was in charge of Dan's clothes, but he had his own personal dresser that always traveled with him. So then right after that, the company in its, you know, the next round of shows, I was Ginger Rogers dresser Ooh. for Coco. Wow. But that also meant that I was uh, the, the wardrobe mistress and her personal dresser, which means like, you know, you run them up and down the aisles, you know, you meet them, you know, with your flashlight and get them up off of stage and and up to their quick change booth and change them and then get them back down to the stage for, for their next entrance. And then I was making a, a grand sum of a hundred dollars a week. If you have any idea how big that show is about Coco, the designer, and the hundreds of costumes uh, <laughs> that were well, that were part of it, and we were using the original Cecil Beaton costumes, mm. so yeah, so that was cool. So I I came into New York with enough. <laughs> this is going to sound so cheesy, but with enough weeks. To get unemployment. <laughs> I, I think at that time I was getting like $105 for unemployment, but it was enough at that time. It was enough to pay my rent, you know, buy whatever, but my food and transportation and all of that jazz. However, um, you know, then I was in New York and I booked a couple of shows and uh as so an as an as an actress or as a dresser as as, as an actress okay. yeah i did get one job at uh at the juilliard school mm. as a dresser they, they were doing some jacobean tragedy right so when i went when i went in for the interview um he said so have you ever done this work before and i says well I was just wardrobe mistress for Coco. And he goes, 
you're hired. <laughs> so, <laughs> however, I actually only did like two shows with them. And then I got a job. So I'm like, bye, an acting job. Uh, and then the following summer, was it the following summer when Goober Ford and Gross was on its on its way out again, uh, they were doing 1776. I did not do the costumes for that. I got called in to do all of the hair, all of the wigs and the tails and the styling and the, you know, putting them in and all of that. Um, our stars were, our first star was, I think, Hugh O'Brien. It was either Hugh O'Brien or because the other star was Dean Jones. They kind of split that tour. Both very, very nice men. Hugh O'Brien, excellent hair. <laughs> uh, you know, and so yeah, I mean, I just kind of kept going out and doing, but working in theater. So, so the know, point, uh, the point is, is you before you became a full time actress, you were before, doing what you could in order to make a living, and that's part, right. And a lot of it was back and working it and working in the theater, right? right. I so, I never waited tables, uh, which I do not demean, not at all. Um, no, you were great. you were fortunate. You were lucky. Yeah, that I had another way to go. So you you have performed both live on stage in front of an audience, you've mm -hmm. performed on camera, and mm -hmm. you've also done voice work, which mm -hmm. which can be in front of an audience, but mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. frequently in a studio somewhere, a soundstage somewhere. Mm -hmm. So do you have a preference between those three? Do you prefer? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Stage. In front of a crowd. Oh, my God. That's Why? my favorite. Why? Well, one is the rapport that you have with the audience. Mm -hmm. uh, you know when they're with you. You know when they're listening to you. Uh, you know when they think you're funny. And I actually did not know this when I graduated from school. But as it turns out, I was funny. My very first uh, equity show was a tour of Butterflies Are Free, mm. a national tour and it was it was not not like the national tour but it was i'll tell you what it is i'm remembering now the national theater company which was run by fran and barry weisler right who who are now big broadway producers big, right big time sure big 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 so i that's how i got my equity card and i got a call now this was you know, this may seem like a step backwards, but I got a call from my stage manager who had worked with me in previous shows. Uh, and he was going to be stage managing the Shirley MacLaine show. Shirley MacLaine was going back on stage and she had this uh, ho lots of hotels around the country. She was going to do a nightclub act. Right. And. Yeah. And he needed somebody who could do costumes and hair. So he called me and I, I had just finished the other tour. So I was out to L.A. to do that show. I toured with them for a year and uh, and and actually had made my way back to L.A. where I started taking acting classes. There you go. <laughs> Yeah. So, all right. So let's, let's talk about your process a little bit. You ah. book a gig, you're given a script, whether you had it in advance or whether they're just giving it to you now, mm -hmm. aside from reading it, which is obvious you need to do. What is the first thing you do in order to start to prepare your character? What do you, how do you, what process do you go through? What does she want? 
that's, that's the, the first thing. That's the question you ask is, is what does she want? What does she want and how does she go about getting what she wants? That's a that's a number one. And that can be uh, expressed in multitude of ways, physically, emotionally, spiritually. What does vocally, she want? How does she vocally, also by the pauses. You know, there's a lot of things that define going about getting what you want, aside from the author's words he actually gives you. Right. He, it, she. And what's the most challenging aspect of doing that, of de de developing that character? What do you find? Do you have something that you regularly go, boy, I wish this was easier to figure out? Or is it all just sort of of a piece? You know, I have found during some uh, shows that you just have to trust and wait that it will come to you. I know I was doing rumors and I just simply could not figure this character out until finally um, I got one note, one note that went, that's who she is. That's what I get to play. That's what I get to lean on. And that note came uh, during your rehearsal process. That wasn't something that came to you prior to your getting into rehearsal and getting a note. That is absolutely correct. So, so the rehearsal it, process, we all know, is a very helpful thing toward making the whole oh show work. Oh, my God, yes. You know, I was working um, uh, at a grant-making foundation for a while uh, at a time when, this isn't going to make any sense because I can't remember his name, it was the guy who was the head of the NRA for Ronald Reagan. Okay. And I went to this thing because he was like, all the arts organizations in town were, you know, called to this meeting, chance to meet him here, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and I remember him saying, uh, there's a very, there was a very famous dance company here in LA called the Bella Lewitsky dancers. Sure. And yeah. And he'd like just had lunch with a whole bunch of the arts leaders. And I remember him saying, you know, Bella tells me that you people need rehearsal. I'm like, you are the head of the NEA and you had to be told that? Where are we? What? <laughs> yeah. So, yes, rehearsal is ultimately the most important step. So, so but I'm, I want to go back a half a step. You have yet to get into rehearsal. You've got the script in front of you. And what yeah. you're saying in this particular case, or maybe in others, when you're reading the script, you can't quite get to what you think is going to be the character, the way you're going to play it. Yeah, everybody has like a core a nugget, either a line or a, some kind of exchange or, you know, some some pearl that they can hang on to. And I didn't have it mm. um, until my darling husband came to uh, like a, a preview and he gave me a note and I went, oh, OK, great. Now I know where I am. <laughs> are there are there particular kinds of parts that you prefer to play? Comedy. Comedy. Anything comedic. Yeah, just about. I'm a character woman, basically. I've done some leading lady stuff. I've done, you know, way back, I did some ingenue stuff. But I was never anybody's first choice for, for an ingenue. Um so uh, and so I got like really, really happy with uh, with character work. It really it made all the difference for me. I got so to play comedy requires timing, right? Yes. And yes. Do you think that you had that that 
ability to time a joke innately or is it something you developed over time? Both. I did know how to deliver it innately and I got better at it. Mm -hmm. And and you got better at it by doing it, not by somebody coaching you to it. By doing it. Yes, by doing it. And then, you know, the ultimate test is doing it in front of an audience. Sure. See if you do get that laugh or see if you model it a little bit differently, you get a better laugh. Um, there was one time I was doing um, Heartbreak House. Brilliant, brilliant Shaw play. And I had uh, these two lines that were very close together. It was actually like one whole big line, but there were two parts of it that, that were funny. So, um, you know, I said the line, I got my first laugh, said the line, got the second laugh. Nice, very nice. However, I figured out that if I didn't let them get that, if I didn't let them take that first laugh, that I'd get a big laugh at the end. So what I did was I was saying the line and right where at the end of the first line, I put up my hands as like, stop. And then I said the last, the rest of the line and got a huge response, <laughs> which is so much nicer than two polite little laughs, you know? Of course. So And so that, you know, I, I taught myself there. Yeah, you can tell the audience what to do. You can tell them. For Wait sure. For it. Yeah, you can. Sure. Yeah. So I did. Uh, so that was like I uh, that was a great uh, learning. Well, is learning there a experience. is there a greater comedy apex than Fireside Theater? I don't think so. I think that's as great a, a bunch of comedic you know, work as, as anybody's ever made. No, you're going to have to, you know, take your own advice on that. I can't, you know, I, I, there's still a hope. I am not that well versed with their work but i'm talking about even, even not being well versed but you've actually worked with them yes yes i did i was on tour with them and i performed with them uh in new york uh you mentioned the toyota comedy festival um it turns out that one of their members wouldn't fly and couldn't get to new york to do the show so they wrote me in I mean, I helped in the writing, you know. I was... So what I, what I guess I'm saying is, is that you performed with Fireside Theater, meaning you had to have some comedy chops going into that, or you weren't going to be doing Fireside Theater. That's pretty good stuff. I mean, they're among my my all time ultimate favorite comedy acts. So, uh, you know, wonderful. All right. So, what for you makes a good role good, and why do you want to do that role? What makes something good to do? Oh, gosh. Mm. Well, uh, the script, obviously, what this character gets to do and say in the script, um, uh, who 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 they get to work with. In other words, in either moving the plot forward or, you know, whatever all the other elements are. I'm not being at all articulate. I, I would assume that part of that is, obviously, if you read a script and know that this character is going to get an enormous number of laughs in a comedy script, that's a pretty good thing to do. Yeah. Do you look for characters when you're, I mean, sometimes you don't have a choice whether you're going to get cast in something or not, but, and maybe almost never you get that choice, but nevertheless, you're looking at a part and the part has to have say something to you. So my assumption is it has something underlying to it that reaches out and speaks to you. Yes. 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 I always am looking 
primarily at the text. What has the author given me? Mm -hmm. Uh, What has the author given me that I can conceive of ways to build on, that I can flesh it all out and make it be uh, an actual person? Have you run into a situation where you went up for a role and there was none of that there? And then you said, no, I'm not going to do this part. There was. Yeah, there was. There was. Uh, it was a very offbeat kind of show. And the director wanted. Some, I didn't like the play. Uh, I can't even remember why I had well, that's, said that's yes okay. to we do don't, it. We don't need to know the name of the play. I just want to know if you've been through that circumstance where a part didn't sing to you. And so yeah. you said, no, I can't do this. Yeah. Um, so what I did was I had actually been cast and I actually had started rehearsing and the director was asking for, you know, things that I it's like I, that's not in my where tool house. I, I, I don't do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then as I was saying goodbye, I did like one more rehearsal and I did everything that he asked me to do. I was not committed. I was not happy. I was not anything, but I did it. Mm -hmm. He loved it. (laughs) And I said, I am so glad now that you know that your point of view is going to work here. Goodbye. (laughs) Well, you have to, you're going to have to work on that every day. So you don't want to do something that doesn't appeal to you in that way. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you have clearly in your lifetime, memorized a lot of lines Mm. what is your trick or technique for memorizing lines um this is something that i developed when i was doing soap operas because you know in soap operas the 60 pages a day is on the back of the actors so there's massive amounts of memorization to do and to what I figured out how to do was to tape record everybody else, you know, all the other people's lines and leave space for my lines and then just play it over and over and over again until I'm really, really comfortable. I know what's happening next. I know, you know, what I want, how to get it, you know, all of that stuff. Um, uh, And that system has actually stayed with me. I hate memorizing lines. It's one of the reasons why I, I, I love voiceover work so much. You don't have to memorize. No, you're standing there. Voiceover work, you're standing there with a script on a on a music stand or something, and you're just reading. Yeah, although actually, you know, we just started doing, um, uh, it's going to be a podcast called Hindsight, and they're going to be different stories, but we just finished recording one, the first story, and... Um, it was so interesting because they were recording it not with a music stand in front of you. They were recording it on like a mini soundstage. Hmm. We had lavalier mics and we had boom mics. So we could like go ahead and do a blocking. Like, you know, if you cross over to so you can actually cross over to them and get the get. I'm understanding. I can't wait to hear it because I understand it. It we're- came out. Were you, were you on book or were you memorized? Uh, yeah, you had no, you had your, you could have your lines. You could walk around with your lines. They did a thing where um, they would, I if you had to turn a page, they would either, you know, know that they were building in a cut there, cut to take the time and rustle out of it. Sure. 
but they also uh our our director had come up with it no he wasn't our director he was our no he's kind of a producer engineer kind of i mean he it was, it was all going through his ears uh even though he wasn't working the actual mics he came up with a, what i what i used and thought was really brilliant is putting the scripts inside uh, the you know those plastic like three hole punch right but yeah so it was kind of like a laminate and that you could carry them around without making any noise it was i mean i i found it really easy i think a lot of the other actors found it was easier to just make the noise and have it cut out later. So obviously when you're doing voiceover work, you're usually, I assume there are sometimes you're doing more than one uh, version of it, or you're coming back on a second day or something like that. But typically you're going to get it all in one day. But when you're doing stage and you're doing a, a, a theatrical production of some kind, you're doing it over and over and over again, over many performances. Right. And what I'm wondering is when you, do you have a different set of preparation, mental or physical preparation that you mm. go through for the stage work that you do that's different from your voiceover work or is it the same uh, preparation? It's really good. That's a really good question. Um, again, for me, sometimes there are just uh, words or phrases or something that reconnects me to where it is. I know I need to be going here. Um, and uh, with voices, you know, a lot of times uh, you're doing dialects and accents. And sometimes with that, then it's like a certain phrase, a certain whatever. I was just playing uh, an Irish cook and um, I was able to use a, a, a note that I'd gotten years ago from someone who was coaching us uh, to do English accents. Uh, and we had to, uh, oh, oh, we were going to have a buffet, right? And he said, the English love to make fun of the way the French pronounce things. So he had us all pronouncing it a buffet instead of a buffet. And <laughs> yeah, which was really funny, all of these people saying buffet. And so I was doing this um, uh, cook role and uh, and she said, um, oh, she was uh, talking to her assistant, right? Uh, who was beating eggs not briskly enough. And she said, we're making a souffle, not an omelette, not an omelette. <laughs> and would the omelette be down at the buffet? <laughs> yeah, you know, so I mean, truly, and, and that was something that I picked up years ago about, you know, something that would be moving forward. Uh, you know, you, you don't know. When lessons that you've learned in the past come up and go, oh, oh, that's what that teacher meant when he said this. Sure. Uh, you just... Of course. Would you say that, obviously, you've already told us that you prefer to do comedy, but you've also done a lot of drama. Is your approach to character in a drama different than comedy, or do you approach every character sort of in the same way? You're going to treat your prep to get into character the same way, whether it's drama or comedy, or are they different? Uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily separate it by comedy and drama. And the, the more comfortable I am with the, the character and what I've established for myself, my own guideposts, um, sometimes it's very easy to slip into. And um, uh, 
You know, I actually, I, it's a really good question. There's much, much less prep work with voiceover. But, but, much... but let's talk about stage work with drama okay. versus comedy. Yeah. So, okay. so you, you obviously have to prepare in a different way. Voiceover work, again, you're going to come in and do maybe just one day on something, one particular yeah, yeah, script. Yeah, yeah. But with a stage piece, you're going to come in, you're going to memorize, you're going to rehearse, you're then going to perform and perform and perform many performances sometimes. Uh, do you come at those from different angles to do drama versus comedy? Or is it simply the same thing? You're just preparing a character and it doesn't matter whether it's drama or comedy. It, it's basically preparing the character and the mindset of the character. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes to make, you know, change things up and make things a little bit different, you can just like tweak that, that thing that pushes you. You know, today, all of them is the same, but she's really annoyed about this one little thing. Right. In the, you know, and, and so, and so that, drives you a little bit differently and you know you get to that point where you're doing it and something else comes out um i do love being surprised i like being surprised on stage and i like surprising on stage I like surprising myself on stage you're talking about surprising yourself or being surprised in a way that's off what the script is or are you talking about in the character uh i never go off script Okay. Um, so it's in uh, character. That surprises. Yeah, yeah, no, just, yeah, just, yeah, that just surprises is like at, you know, whatever moment in the play, whatever you've decided to have drive you that night comes out different. It comes out different. Sometimes it's funnier. Sometimes you've learned it and then it stays or sometimes it doesn't register and you go, okay, well, that was interesting. It, I'm really not sure I'm answering your question. You are, you are, it's when you're in a show, it's how do you get to one thing or another? And I, I think what you're saying is, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're developing a character to perform, whether it's for comedy or drama, it's going to be a, a similar path to getting to the character. The delivery is what changes, not the preparation. Is that That's right? Okay, good. good yeah, good, good. that is right. But I will tell you something about performing drama. And my, my husband actually pointed this out to me. I was doing Blanche in Streetcar. Okay. Um, and actually, do you remember there was a guy named Gene Feist? He started the Roundabout Theater. I know the name. Yeah, sure. Um, I was doing a, a play down at the Roundabout. And Gene, I think he was like really into like all of the women's clubs and so forth. So we would go and uh, perform scenes the based on whatever point he was trying to make dramatically. And I was do, I'm doing a couple of scenes from Streetcar. And he goes, I never realized Blanche was so funny. I went, well, I wasn't playing it to be funny. <laughs> I guess that's just uh, Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I well, didn't know Blanche was a funny character either. She is. She's really she's quite humorous. So when I did Streetcar, they said that one because Blanche was was funny, it gained her enormous sympathy, enormous sympathy, m much more than than usual. Hmm. So um, and that was me playing a drama. I wasn't playing the comedy. I was just playing the the play. And it was Tennessee who was so funny. 
Well, it, it textually, um, comedy is a subset of drama. So when you play comedy, you're you're not playing the comedy; you're playing a character. But the comedy is hopefully inherent in the way it's written. That's what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. However, um, there are others who play that role and don't get the laughs. Of so course. you know, it's just uh, you know, I don't know how to say it. It's like the the a tweak that you do in your brain that just moves 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 the material differently. Sure, I I need to ask you about Nor about Norman Corwin. Um, you may Aww. not know this. You may not know this, but I was a disciple of Norman Corwin's. I was a student of his, and I knew him up till you know his death, and I saw him right toward the very end. Um, and so I'm wondering for you in your work with Norman, who was one of the greatest playwrights and directors who ever lived. The greatest, the the absolute lion of radio, of audio uh, theater. 100%. When you worked with Norman, what made him so special for you? What was it about Norman? Um, you know, uh, it's interesting because I didn't actually work. Norman didn't direct the plot to Overthrow Christmas. Right. Um, but I was playing Lucretia Borgia, and which he had written decades earlier. Oh, sure. I said, because she's Italian, I did it with an Italian accent, which made it, yes, funnier. And Norman says he had never even thought of doing that <laughs> and just loved it, just absolutely loved it. And so... Uh, and then later he directed me in a couple, like an evening at the Museum of Television and Radio. Right. And, and a Norman Corwin evening. So, and he was just, he was always incredibly gracious, incredibly gracious. And if you couldn't get what he was going for, he'd give you a line reading. Fine. I'd, I'd rather though do that than not get what it was he wanted. Sure. He was probably the smartest person I've ever dealt with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and he had no advanced education. His education was all self-taught. Wasn't he something? He Isn't was something. That something? And, and, I remember and him lived to be 101, lived to be a ripe old age, uh, and, oh. and had all of his smarts with him the whole time. <laughs> I know. Particularly amazing. I remember him one time saying that he spoke to his father every Sunday. And... Every Sunday, his father would ask the same question. So, Norman, what have you learned this week? <laughs> Norman was the most thoughtful and uh, erudite person that I think I ever actually worked with. Yeah. Um, so, all right. We, let were, me... we were we were both very, very lucky to have known him. Well, I, I know I actually met your husband at Norman's 90th birthday at the Skirball Center. That's how I met Phil in the first place was at Norman's birthday. How do you like that? I sat next to Phil and Leonard Moulton. That's how I met Phil. <laughs> is that the one? Isn't we did we hold these truths? And you know, uh, I, it, it might have been. It, it was one of Norman's pieces, I know, that we did there to celebrate his you, birthday. Correct. And that may have been it. So all right, so let you we've already talked about Norman being a director, but let's talk about directors in general. Have you ever been given a great note over the years that you've taken with you and said, I'm going to apply this note from a director and you've applied it repeatedly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had one director who um, I was doing a was doing a 
a play and my character was very animated um, and it, it got, you know, great reviews and everything. And he came to see it about, you know, a week and a half later. And he goes, I'm not seeing anything new here. I'm uh, I feel like all of your moves are calculated. And so, uh, you know, I took a look at that and he goes, yeah, you know what? He's right. I'm just uh, there's a, a roteness in there that is not fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, I really do try and give myself that note, especially once we get into the run of something. You try you to know. keep it fresh that way. Yeah. Just don't do the same thing you did last night. Is there anything you do differently now in how you work with directors and the way that you try to get or or hopefully get from them what you need? Is there something you do differently now than when you first started out? Well, you know, you're always going to come into any rehearsal period with some preconceived notions. And sometimes the directors knock them down. You got to listen to your director. You got to trust it and listen to it. And then sometimes you can take his note and still infuse it with what your intention was. It has to do with listening, not just to the words, but to the request. Mm -hmm. What would you like in rehearsal What would you like more of from directors that you often don't get? More direction. I'm one of I'm one of those actors that because I kind of know my way around uh, stage wise, that sometimes directors will like (laughs) seems like they're not paying any attention to me. That really annoys me. It's like, I want some notes. <laughs> I want, just prove to me you're looking at me when I'm speaking or, you know, something. It, um, is it because I, you're I, doing such a good job? They don't feel like they need to give you any? Yeah. Well, I, I you know, I, you know, I could say that that's so. Um, it's just that they, I guess they don't feel like they need to put their primary attention, their other problems that they want to solve first i beg for notes i really do i beg for them so do you (laughs) have you ever gotten notes that you had no idea what to do with the note and then how do you handle that have you ever thought wow okay i asked for notes they gave me notes and uh, now i'm confused does that ever happen i can't think of it ever happening that's really that's great that's really great i know that uh i've seen directors give notes to actors and the actors go i don't know what the heck to do with that note that's why I asked the question. I just wondered if you ever get, uh, get something from a director and and you don't how do you handle it when you don't know what to do with it? But you've, yeah. you've never had that ex- experience. So you, I, I can't recall ever having that re- experience. Have you ever seen a director do something that was unhelpful or harmful even to you or another actor? And so and no names here, but that was something that you knew that was not how a director should treat an actor or not treat you. I tend to dismiss a lot of that stuff from my memory. You know, I don't think any director is served by uh, any kind of um, abuse uh, to an actor. Uh, I have seen, I've seen actors be afraid to try something because they're afraid they're going to get negated trumped on dismissed whatever by mm-hmm. uh but i've you know stage directors are usually they're usually pretty hip they're usually sure usually yeah sure that, that that's true the theater is a little different than a director in a really big hurry on a movie set or a tv yeah set. yeah and they tend to push a little harder the stage yeah. directors are trying to work they, you through it 
Yeah, they push a little harder and they accept a little less. Mm -hmm. For sure. And well, and in the case of a television show, more often than not, the director is, the actors are coming in and just, you just better know your lines, hit your marks and do your thing and you're out and that's it. They're traffic cops. Traffic cops. Yeah, for sure. All right. So stages and sets are notoriously both, both, you know, on movie sets and, and in the theater are notoriously potentially distracting places. Do you have any techniques for blocking out the distractions and just doing what you need to do? I mean, blocking them out of my head? Yes. So so on a busy set where there's a lot of hubbub and you yeah. need to prepare to speak your lines or perform in a scene, um, is there anything you do to not allow the distractions to uh, upset what you're thinking about or what you're trying to do? Well, uh, no, not really, because usually all the distractions that's going on around you as an actor is what's going on around you as the character. And the ca- and so you deal with it as your character would. So in other mean. words, in other words, you're on a set. You're 10 minutes away from where you're going to have action called. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of activity on the set. Oh, and you're that, trying to yes. get into oh, a that. mindset yeah. Yeah. to do your part. Do you have a technique for blocking out the distractions? Yes, I do. I close my eyes and I sit down and breathe. And breathe. Do you have a specific breathing technique that you use or do you just breathe, period? I just breathe deep. A couple of deep, deep breaths. It helps to center me. Um, But also closing my eyes. That helps. You can block out a lot if you can't see it. (laughs) well that's true that is true so you clearly over a long career have times when you're between jobs Um, oh oh sometimes long this is what i always say this is what i always say you know my next job is right around right around the next corner and my job is to walk to the corner and oh that's great your job is to walk to the corner while you're waiting on that next job. Yeah, because it's going to be right around the corner. I've just got to walk to the corner. And how do you treat that time? What do you do? Do you do you work out? Do you memorize other things? Do you read? What is What do you do during those in-between periods to stay fresh and in the, in the groove, so to speak? I do work out. I work out four times a week. And that's very helpful because it actually takes up time and you're and, you know, when you're exercising, you can be, you know, running all kinds of stuff through your head. I, I always say, and this is, I'm sure, totally way off center here, but I love to garden. And I always say that gardening can be expensive, <laughs> but it's a lot cheaper than therapy. <laughs> yes. And, and, you know working with my hands, you know, I find that I just like resolve so many things just by doing some menial job. And my brain is obviously, you know, working on something else. So, uh, yeah, so I love gardening. Um, yeah, I also, I'm, I've been learning Italian. Italian? Yeah, yeah. Many reasons for that. But I've been, uh, I've been doing, uh, during the pandemic, uh, doing Zoom classes, um, which has really been fun. I love our uh, La Nostra pro- Profesoressa. I lo- we love our teacher. Um, yeah, so that's like another thing. And then, of course, that entails 
homework and some hours in the library doing our, you know, in uh, reading. I used to be a really big reader. I'm not as much anymore. I had to like really stupid, simple things every day, like the crossword puzzle and the jigsaw puzzle and the, uh, the crossword and Sudoku. And, you know, I, I love doing, uh, it's one of the things I do before I go to sleep is do um, a jigsaw puzzle, which is just, again, it's like when it's like, it doesn't take a whole lot of brain power. You can just you know, accomplish something simply and at least feel all I, well, I did. A jigsaw puzzle it. at least keeps your visual acuity sharp yeah. and gardening will help keep your, your physical body sharp. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there you go. And, and if you're doing uh, crosswords or anything like that, you're keeping yourself mentally sharp. I think that's all very helpful. So I've been speaking to Melinda Peterson for almost an hour now, and we're going to wind this thing down a little bit. And I'm just wondering in all of your experiences and your many, many experiences, are you able to share with us a story that is either oddball, weird, uh -huh. quirky, offbeat, strange, or just plain funny? Okay. I'm going to say this is something that I actually learned. It, it, it may not be that funny, but when I was doing dressing work and uh, wig work, I was very, very aware, not expecting when I first went out there at all, of being tipped, hmm. getting tips. And uh, I said, you know, Peggy Cass, when she found out I was making $85, $85 a week, she would, she, you know, she would give me an extra 20 every week, you know, which is great. At that time, an extra 20 bucks, great. So then I was doing cocoa with Ginger Rogers. Ginger Rogers has a bit of a reputation of being not entirely generous. Okay. So, uh, so I was working with Peggy. I think our tour was just for six weeks and the one with Ginger was nine weeks. So after nine weeks of dressing her and running her up and down the aisle, I got a check. My tip was $25. <laughs> my, my stage manager looks at me and goes, there's a zero missing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that it may not be, it's not hilarious, uh, but, uh, but, but because of that, I, and I encourage other actors to be generous with everyone that serves them. Sure. You know, anybody who's, you know, working on your behalf, make sure they get the acknowledgement. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, which, by the way, I also tip really well when I'm in restaurants, too, because I never had to do that. <laughs> I never had to do that. And I just go, bravo, you making a living. And, and those people work hard. And if you're in a place like yes. L.A. or New York, a lot of those people are actually in the business and uh, struggling. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, you've already given us a, a pretty fair chunk of really useful advice as we've done the show. But I'm wondering, do you have a solid piece of advice or a tip that you like to give to people who are starting out in the business, or maybe they're in a little bit, but trying to just get to that next level. I think the most important word is yes. Say yes. Say yes to any role, any experience, because, you know, like I said, I was in this other play and I found out I didn't like the play, you know? So I said, no, but first I said, yes. So that I, I learned for myself, that this was not the kind of 
piece I wanted to do. But uh, there's a lots of times when I've said yes to stuff that I haven't felt secure about, and it's all come out great. You know, a couple of things. You never know who you're going to meet. You never know who you're going to work with, who wants to work with you again, or just be with you again, or can speak for you sometime. Um, so, you know, that's a, a, if, if, which I did not have, you have like a specific plan in your head. If I had like had a plan at the very, very beginning saying, yeah, I want to, I want to do comic roles, then I would have only said yes to comic roles. And I may have accomplished something else, but because I, I just did everything I could, I felt that it rounded me more. I think it probably definitely rounded you more. And I think that that's really sage advice to say, especially in a business where you don't know where the next job is coming from frequently, say yes to as much as you can. And I love the notion that when you do say yes, you don't know where that yes will lead you to the next job after that. So I think that's very, very wise and valuable advice. Oh, that's so kind of you, Steve. Well, it's true. So, uh, you know, uh, Melinda Peterson, this has been a fantastic hour on Storybeat. And I'm so glad that you spent a little time with me today. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful next time I'm in Los Angeles, I get to see you and your fantastic husband. You better. So I I can't thank you enough. I appreciate it, Melinda, greatly. Oh, thanks. Thanks for the invitation. And uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, the next in-person that we get to do. And so we've come to the end of today's Story Beat. If you like this episode, won't you please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great Story Beat episodes to you. StoryBeat is available on all major podcast apps and platforms, including Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many others. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.